Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself, Season 3. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, with my co-host, Matt McButter. This season, we are talking about the nature of consciousness. One of the themes we pursued in Seasons 1 and 2 was the idea that a quiet mind is crucial to staying in the moment, to staying in flow. We all know this from experience. If your thoughts are all over the place, it's hard to focus on what's happening to you. If your mind is quiet, on the other hand, it's easier to maintain awareness. Now, for most of us, most of the time, the challenge of maintaining a quiet mind is something that is well within our grasp. You can train your mind to stop distracting you. You can teach it to quiet down, to stop darting around, and to be still. And while it's not an easy task, in your typical day-to-day life, it's eminently doable. It just takes practice and determination. Most of the time, the chaos inside our minds is of our own making. All that said, there are situations in life where the chaos is actually real. Take any emergency, like a car accident or a house on fire. Thankfully, most emergencies come to an end. But what if they didn't? What if you woke up every day and the chaos was still there? I don't know this from experience, but I'm guessing that's what war might feel like. It's hard to imagine what it's like to keep one's mind in check in the midst of war, so I'm not even going to try. Instead, we're going to ask today's guest, Chris Wade, an Iraq veteran, to tell us what it's actually like. He's going to talk to us about war, PTSD, and what it's like to try to write your way out of whatever war does to your mind, and a whole lot more. At the present moment, whispering in your ear, oh, can you hear the echo of days gone by right now, right here, right now, right here, right now, right here, yeah. Welcome, Chris. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. I've known Chris for a little over a year, but uh, listeners do not know you, Chris. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Small town, call myself a boy, but 35-year-old from the Berkshires. Uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old, shortly after 9-11 took place and the commencement of the Iraq War on September 2003. Went on to active duty in 2004, um, and between 2004 and 2008, did two combat tours in Iraq, and have since returned, and still every single day, tried to adjust to civilian life. (laughs) All right, so I wanted to start with what I think is good news, but you tell me. From what I know from talking to you, your experience in Iraq ultimately led to your search for the self, right? For your own consciousness. And that's what all hard things do. Would you characterize it that way? Was it helpful to you in that regard? Absolutely. I think the whole experience, both combat and non-combat, just in a combat environment, it greatly restructures your morals. You know, you go from being a 17 or 18-year-old kid to suddenly being thrown into literal life or death situations. You see true poverty. You know, you see true struggles and it really, it 
it realigns everything in their world. It really does. You know, what I said there about, you know, the difficulty in, in keeping your mind quiet in, you know, day-to-day life, what's it like? You know, how do you focus on what's happening to you? What does it do to your mind? Does it make it harder to focus? Or, you know, I could see a argument where it says it makes it a whole lot easier to focus because you're focused on one very single thing, which is staying alive. I guess it will depend on what the task is. And one of the things that I've experienced with PTSD is like there's a swing to it. Certain times of year, certain triggers, anniversaries, etc. So all in all, you really just have to learn to, you have to learn to accept everything that you've been through. You have to learn to de- accept the realities of your world around you. You know, coming back to civilian life after being in combat, you have a lot of good skills that you can put to use because of your experiences with that trauma. Mm-hmm. You talked about coming back to, you know, adjusting to civilian life. And I can't even imagine our knowledge comes from, you know, the movies that we watch and the shows that we watch. We almost feel like we have a little window into it, even though it's obviously just, you know, film and some are probably more realistic than others or, or you know, but one that that makes me think of it also because it was Iraq was uh, The Hurt Locker with Jeremy Renner. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but there's a scene at the end that really resonated with me where he's just standing around in a grocery store and he's come back from, you know, diffusing 500 IEDs or whatever it is. And he comes back and he's just sitting there in a grocery store looking at a box of cereal. And that scene really kind of resonated with me like, wow, what he's been through. And now coming back to the kind of like mundane, going into a grocery store and buying a box of cereal, like, what is that? You know, uh, they really hit the nail on the head with that particular scene. Um, Great movie. I really did enjoy the Hurt Locker. I won't touch too much on the realism of it. Okay. As a combat veteran, you kind of, you're a little bit of a critic when it comes to war movies. Sure. But as far as that particular scene, that's something that I've noticed through my experiences is when you go from being in a sort of world, you know, it's not just combat. This is a, this is a whole nother world. There are, People who live there, they don't get to come home after seven months or 10 months. This is their day-to-day life. used to watch a woman from one of my outposts in 2007. I was doing base security on Al Air Force Base. And this woman used to walk with a jug of water on her head across the scorching desert every single day just to provide water for her family. You know, and you come back and you're walking through the grocery stores and you got... 36 different options on makers brand cereal and ice cream. And it's like, I don't care. You can give me vanilla. If it's friendlies, if it's Stewart's, if it's hood, I have ice cream. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I got a question for you. I thought about this today. You seem to me, at least outwardly to be fairly well adjusted and COVID has not seemed to have thrown you for much of a loop comparatively to to other people that I know. It occurred to me that the pandemic situation has some analogous, you know, and it's somehow analogous to war. Like people get knocked off their center and feel that everything is being dictated from the outside rather than being within their control. Do you see a parallel there? Like are people that you know who are vets, have they been able to handle the stresses of COVID differently than non-veterans? 
I'll say, first off, I'm glad to know that I have the outward projection of <laughs> calm and still, because that's usually far from the case. Uh, but as far as, you know, the realities of COVID, um, well, first thing I think is the initial fear. Okay, everyone's, we have this new bug, we don't know what it's going to do. Everyone freaks out. You know, if you let fear take over when you're in combat, you're not going to get anything done. You're going to be, you're going to render yourself ineffective. You're going to be ineffective. You're going to be useless. You're actually going to be a liability for everyone else around you. If you let that fear overcome. I never really gave into the, the fear driven narrative, you know, that is really pushed through big media outlets and whatnot. And as far as just keeping my focus on the day to day, you know, you're never more quarantined than you are sitting on an outpost in the middle of the desert. I'll tell you that much. You, you figure out ways to occupy your mind, occupy yourself. So I think I do have a leg up on a lot of people in that regard. You didn't go stir crazy, right? Like a lot of folks. So let's talk about writing. You and I have talked about it a bit. You do a lot of journaling. We've been talking about a book uh, project in the making. What is writing doing for you in terms of helping you get centered again and sort of residing where you want to be in your consciousness in the context of your experience? I found writing through therapy. I deal with symptoms of PTSD. I deal with bouts of insomnia, um, restlessness, hypervigilance, as they call it. And I went through a program, the Hudson Valley Center for Veteran Reintegration, right here in Kingston. It's located in Tech City. Awesome program. You got veterans from Vietnam through Iraq and Afghanistan that go there. And they... One of the programs that they offer is this Warrior Writers Group. For years, I've kind of on and off floored with my writing. Um, But I'll tell you, in the past 18 months or so here, I've found that when I dive into it and I can focus on it, it not only helps me recreate and relive some of my experiences, but reprocess them from a different perspective. There are times I'll be crying, you know, tears streaming down my face and just fingers going crazy on the keyboard because everything just pours right out well all in all you know it's 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 like my confidants it's my it's my go-to it's my keeper of all my secrets you know i I can tell my journal anything i can write about the horrors of war i can write about the horrors of lost love it doesn't matter it's definitely therapeutic Mm. wow Joey caught me crying a couple of times while I was writing tickled i was in the middle of something and i'm in here tears streaming down my face yeah So I've been there. I got a question about surrender. So one thing I've realized of late, and you read about it in Tickled, is that in the spiritual life, surrender is the key. Surrender to what is, which is acceptance and not introducing friction, wishing things were not the way they are. If you can surrender, you can be clear. It makes it easier to be clear about what you might want to do next in war you want to win or declare victory or whatever it is that you felt like you were doing in the various roles over there is it hard for you to did that make it difficult for you to like grapple with the idea of surrender no when you enlist you give up your constitutional rights you live under a new code you live under the uniform code of military justice there's full surrender. Mm. Every contract that you sign in the military, or at least in the Marine Corps, ends with 
per the needs of the United States Marine Corps and the United States Department of Defense. So you are helpless in that situation. It's a different higher power, right? That was a different higher power on a spiritual level. uh, No, I think surrendering, truly surrendering your soul, truly surrendering your consciousness comes from self-actualization. It comes through meditation. It comes through silence and peace. And one word I really have grabbed a hold of for several years now is coherence. You know, I think the ultimate goal of meditation through self-exploration is achieving that state of coherence. And with the chatter of war, constantly, it's this negative feed. It's always chirping right behind your ear. It just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And you have to learn how to just give it up. Bad things happen. Control what you can control. Come to know God as you understand him. I don't care if you call him Jesus, if you call him Allah, if you call him Buddha, if you call him, uh, what's that one with the Scientology, the orb thing in the sky, whatever. (laughs) If you can make a resolution with your own morality, and who you are and how you live your life, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. I know that in war, I never went out of my way to hurt anybody. I was there to help people. I was there to defend people. If bad things happened over there, you know, I have to accept that that's what it is. I was 17 years old when I enlisted. And I think a lot of, you know, my comrades, a lot of my fellow combat veterans probably feel the same way. Can I ask what made you or what possessed you to enlist at 17? Was was it something you always kind of wanted to do? Was it like a patriotic duty kind of thing? Or what was, you know, it, adventure? There's certainly duty about it. Um, yeah. You know, I was a sophomore in high school and 9-11 happens in 2001. I remember staring into the sky and not seeing a single airplane. Um, my high school sweetheart's uncle was actually one of the firefighters who lost his lives down there in the city. Wow. It was a moment that stopped the world. It was a moment that really united the country. There's that saying about, I would never ask for another 9-11, but man, the way people came together on 9-12-2001, I felt a cold surf. Yeah. You know, I told my parents at 17 years old, I went to the recruiter's office on my own. I called him. He didn't pick me up in a school gym or anything like that. Told him what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an infantryman. He made me take my ASVAB. My ASVAB score was far too high to be an infantryman. He would probably get in a lot of trouble if he let me enlist as an infantryman. No disrespect to the grunts. I love the grunts. Um, but I went to my parents and I'm like, this is what I want to do. And they made me wait on it. I told him I'd give it two weeks and to see if it's still what I wanted to do. And at the end of that two weeks, I said, I can either do this now with your blessing or when I turn 18 in a couple months, I'm going to do it anyways. It's your decision. Wow. Another just question while I've got you here. Is jarhead a derogatory term or is that actually cool? Is it like, yeah, we're, it's a jarhead. It's a Marine. Oh, I, mean, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, okay. I guess it, who's using it? Maybe. <laughs> okay. I won't use it, but I, I mean, I, again, my context is, you know, the, the movies I've seen and the books that I've read. So. Empty vessels, my friend, empty vessels. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite yogi, Oryabindo, says the following. Peace is the first condition without which nothing can be stable. Felt unstable when you came back from Iraq? Are you getting close to stability again? Oh, I don't think I'll ever be the same. I don't think I'll ever want to be the same. 
don't think I'll ever want to be stable, to be honest with you. I've seen enough of this world just to know how much is out there, how much variety is out there, how many different ways of life, how many different beliefs, how many different convictions. No, I think I'm coming closer to my own moral alignment, getting where I need to be, mm-hmm. being happy with myself. As far as that quote goes, I've never heard that before. It's an interesting one. At the last Rockledge Rager, we burnt a giant llama, <laughs> which Chris built. And it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So he's got more talents than you might think. Chris. This has been wonderful. It's been very insightful and really nice to hear your thoughts on uh, the effects of war and and what it's like to reintegrate. Good to have you. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show and uh, thanks for your service. Yes, sir. Thank you. You guys have Cheers. Fun. Yeah, thank you. But you try with your whole soul best never to think these thoughts and never to let them kind of thoughts gain ground or make your heart pound. But then again, you know when they're around, just waiting for a chance to slip and drop down. So I've always loved that Dylan song, Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. And there's that line at the end where he says, but then again, you know, when they're around, just waiting for a chance to slip and drop down. It's about keeping the thoughts you don't want to think away from you. And I imagine that's the whole challenge of being a veteran, right? To keep that experience in the past where it belongs. I don't want to discount the experience of war because I don't know anything about it, but I am increasingly of the opinion that the external is a reflection of the internal. If we win the inner battle, we'll win the outer battle. I'm not talking about actual war, but I'm talking about the fight we're all in. Since last year, and you know this from or from talking to me this whole time, my own experience has been I felt unburdened. Somewhere in early quarantine, I, I realized that there was nothing to be anxious about or irritated about or concerned about, that everything was okay even in the midst of the pandemic. And that stayed with me. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer in conflict with anyone around me or anything, like even ideas, except maybe quantification, which you talked about. I'm not at war with it. It's a realization. I think the the internal battle is the one to win. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I also think about, and you addressed this in Tickle as well, but certain situations might be hard to have that kind of like peace. If you're working two jobs, you know, let's say like you're, you're an immigrant working two jobs. You've just moved here and you're, you're busting your ass constantly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you've got like, I don't know, maybe some difficult, uh, difficult home life and you're living in a, an apartment that's way too small for you, something like that. It would be harder to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the same token, I wonder how you could ever do that in combat. I mean, I think you need to have a sort of certain connectedness and you need to obviously have this amazing, call it like a higher consciousness or like a situational awareness to not get yourself killed and to achieve your mission and not get anyone else around you killed. But there must be, and this is probably what, you know, leads to some PTSD afterwards too. It's like the things that you have to do and the things that you see while you're at war. How do you get rid of them? Uh, Yeah. And it was really interesting how Chris is saying like, you just have to accept that those are part of your existence and that these are things that happened and you have to kind of move on from those. Uh, you know, I talk about this in Tickle. You are something that happened and you don't want to get all consumed with that which has happened. Just you want to stay. So here we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing. If I didn't know 
he was a veteran there. I wouldn't guess even in, you know, he is so cheerful, so nice, doesn't seem to harbor or be carrying too much anger with him versus anybody. But it's amazing. He's a really well-adjusted guy. And one of the people who I've enjoyed spending time with the last year more than anybody. Mm. He does do, um, is in a lot of that PTSD and writing therapy. So I guess there is yeah. something you carry with you. Well, he alluded to the fact that although on the exterior, he may come across as very well adjusted, that he's still, you know, obviously with the PTSD battling some demons. And I can't imagine actually. Neither can I. You know, you you read books and watch movies and that's the way that we sort of share the human experience. But, uh, you know, he kind of laughed at that. He was like, yeah. That's not how it is at all. But I, I did read about this somewhere. I read American Sniper, which was the autobiography of a a sniper named Chris Kyle. They ended up making it into a movie, I think, with Bradley Cooper. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Pretty insightful, the autobiography for sure, into what's going on over there. And he but he was like a very he was like a super patriot. He and his wife used to argue, he said, over the order of your priorities in life. God, love, and country. And he was like, he put, I think, country and then God and then love. And his wife is like, no, it's, I can't remember what, I can't remember exactly what. They're little pedantic details. They disagreed on that. So I've got one for you. I was trying to figure out a war related thing and I and it occurred to me that um so strategy oh yeah I like this already the word strategy comes from the Greek strategia which means officer command of a general or if you play the game stratego I general, love stratego right one of the great board games yeah so in American business schools, and I talk about this a lot in the Golden Passport, the strategy gurus in business schools were very responsible for filling our language of business with battle metaphors, right? Rally the troops, Mm -hmm. you know, crush the competition, all this stuff. And one of the things I wrote about in that book was that unlike in war, where you would assume that you need a talented general, right? In business, the idea that we need a supreme leader, a CEO of giant organizations that the CEO doesn't really do much day to day, right? These days they do strategy and it's a form of rhetoric. It's claimed expertise, right? That seeks to justify their authority. One of the guys who promoted it you know, one of the fathers of strategy in the business school mind is Michael Porter, right, mm-hmm. from Harvard. And he founded this consulting company called Monitor Group, which was a consulting firm that consulted on strategy. And that f- consulting firm failed. So goes a lot to showing you what the business school people really know about predicting the future. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of one more thing. And I know I'm going on here. When Enron collapsed and McKinsey was implicated, or at least it seemed like they had their fingerprints all over it, they asked the head of McKinsey at the time about the firm's culpability. And he said, we advise clients on their strategy. They are responsible for the actions that they take. 
<laughs> so that in other words, ridiculous. in other words, strategy isn't real. He just admitted it. Decisions are, if someone claims to specialize in strategy, don't listen to them because they're claiming to be able to predict the future. You want someone who knows how to get things done. Mm-hmm. I guess what they're saying is, you know, we, we, we give advice and whether or not you take our advice is, is, is up, up to, to you. you. And if you take our advice and it happens to be, you know, sink you or, or it happens to <laughs> be against the law, that's, you know, no, I guess they don't give any. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Like I, in my yeah. book, The Firm, I called it, you no know, a perfect business model. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. And as he just said there, they deny responsibility for anything having to do with any of their advice. They're like, that has nothing to do with us. Uh, Raja Gupta, by the way, later went to jail for insider trading. So he was culpable for something. So wrapping things up, closing with another Oriabindo quote. This one isn't quite related to what we're talking about today, but it's just a good one. So we're talking about consciousness and moving, you know, from one place to another, like Chris was talking about. Here's what he said. It takes time, of course, to make the transition from one state of consciousness to another. The depth of feeling will come more and more as your consciousness draws back from the claim of external things and goes deeper in into the heart region, seeing and feeling from there with the psychic to prompt and enlighten it. Faith will also increase with that movement. For it is the outer intellect that is infirm or deficient in faith. The inner being of the heart has it always. That's from his book, Letters on Yoga. Have we discussed this, by the way, that I have completely have faith in the existence of God? Like it hit me like a lightning bolt last year. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of apparent that you have. <laughs> I thought I thought. So that doesn't that mean that you have faith in the existence of yourself? It was a shift in consciousness that did it. It suddenly I was like, ooh, wait, what? God is real. And that was, you know, back to what I said earlier. It made everything okay. I had no more concerns. But your God is, it seems to be this, like, it's yourself, right? Solipsistic well, point worldview, isn't it? I no, don't know. No, no, it's, no, no, it's no, not no. A, not the old, Every, not Everything the old, is God. The old gray beard guy. Like the old gray bearded guy. It's everything guy. is God. So you are, I am, everything is. God is infinite possibility. So you have faith in everything. I have faith in existence, right? The fact that we exist. Yeah. That's all you need to know. (laughs) I'm with you. On which note, thank you for listening. We will be back with you in a week with a brand new guest. Bye-bye. At the present moment, traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion right here, right now. Right here, right now Whoa, right here, right now You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen, 
with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.